Anthony, hello. Hello. <laughs> we <laughs> we want to talk with you about this very interesting Seventh Circuit case from last week. But but this is, I mean, this is the return of the prodigal son. This is Anthony Christ. That's a fair point. I mean, this is Anthony. This is your what is this? Your twelfth appearance? On no, Oral it's his eighteenth appearance <laughs> for sure. It's definitely at least eighteen. Uh, back yeah. when you were when you were a wee lad, uh, was your first appearance, I think. And now you are like you're taking over the world. Tell us what you're up to before we get to this uh, Hively and and all of the amazing things that have been happening. It seems like every time you're on, by the way, amazing things are happening. I think the first time you were on, there were decisions about gay marriage which were being made. As we were recording, <laughs> I think that's yeah, right. There, yeah, there were there were developments, and I think it was the Fourth Circuit um, in the last five minutes, and we had we stopped recording, and then we wound up re-record or we started recording again. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, so uh, now I'm in Chicago. Um, so it's it's actually a little interesting, or I should say, weird that I can't see you all and I'm not in studio with you <laughs> um, this time. But uh, teaching at Chicago Kent and. Uh, Right this semester, we, I'm teaching administrative law and, um, and legal writing, so that's that's going well. Hoping to do a seminar class next semester on headlight law, so maybe we can <laughs> talk about that. Um, talk about yeah. a great legal writing and you know exercise. I think, I oh, think yeah. something could happen there. Yeah, no, I think that's a great open memo exercise in waiting. I think what's great about our headlight debate is that the stakes are just low enough where people can afford to get really angry about it. Nice. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not like a it's not like knee defender on an air on an airplane where these days I sort of feel like you're basically asking for a beating. I mean, literally <laughs> well, be, asking for a beating. You'll get reaccommodated. That's all. <laughs> God, the knee, suddenly all that the the airplane seat stuff, all the stuff we talk about, it's like less funny now. Yeah, it seems more fraught. Yeah, it does. It does. So I'm very jealous, Anthony, that you're teaching administrative law. I would love to teach that. Yeah, I don't know if my students think it's so great, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, and I can't, and I, I think like every time I teach a case, I'll say, well, you know, uh, we don't know where this is going to, you know, if this is going to last the next five or 10 years, but I'm going to teach it anyway. So, um, there hopefully Chevron, hopefully Chevron will stick around. So my, uh, my teaching isn't in vain. <laughs> uh, well, but, uh, we'll see. There's a new, there's a new sheriff in town, a new justice in town. Yeah. He wants to get rid of it. There's a draft statute as well, kicking around the house of representatives that eliminates Chevron. There are all kinds of draft statutes kicking around the House of Representatives. This is true. It uh, is about which the less said, the better. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you'll be teaching at Kent again next year. Yeah. So next year uh, I'll be teaching employment discrimination in the fall. So uh, how appropriate, given mm. what's been going on. Yeah. Uh, really looking forward, actually, in the most for the meantime to a Chicago summer. So, <laughs> now, um, does that happen in? The second two weeks of August. When does that? When is yeah, when so, is Chicago summer? Sometime you know between July thirty first and August fifteenth. You know is, is summer, and uh, and it turns one hundred and ten degrees. Yeah, and, and then it yeah. gets back to negative forty. <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you what. Though we had a week of negative. It was like negative nine, negative ten, and I and I kept thinking to myself, in Georgia, we you know we closed down the university when it was fifteen, um, and felt like ten. So, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I was I felt like a trooper getting on the L, making it to work on time. And I think one, they just I think they just send out ambulances looking for bodies at that temperature. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my gosh! Okay, so uh, enough chit chat. Even though it's wonderful to hear, like see, I already know everything going on in Anthony's life because I follow his amazing Twitter feed. Mm, 
um, where he, um, I, how many, he's got like 300,000 followers or something like that, all hanging on his every word. He keeps everybody updated on 300, everything. 300,000 could be the number of tweets, actually, not just <laughs> the number of <laughs> followers. Awesome. There is a relation. There is a relation between number of tweets and followers, I found. <laughs> Uh, there's also there's also a relationship between the amount of time I spend on the L and how many tweets I have in a day. Oh, is that right? Oh, the longer the commute, the more the tweets. Yeah. Should we talk about Hively? We should. So well, what's what's the what's the big issue here? What top level, um, you know, le- legal news, world news? What is what's going on in Hively? Yeah. So all right. Well, of course, you know, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. Um, prohibits uh, discrimination in employment on a number of protected classes, race, religion, um, national origin. And one of those protected classes is is sex. Um, and so it's not um, for, for years, dating back to the 70s, um, a number of gay plaintiffs tried to say that sex uh, discrimination was also akin to sexual orientation discrimination and that they were, in fact, one and the same, and that Title VII basically, therefore, prohibited sexual orientation discrimination in the workplace, and you could sue as a, you know, as a consequence. Um, every, every court from the 70s until uh, last week said, no, there is no, there is no viable claim here under Title VII, if you want to amend title or if you want sexual orientation discrimination uh, in the workplace to be outlawed, you have to go back to Congress and get Title VII amended. And of course, a number of efforts had been made. Um, they picked up some steam in the mid-90s and, and in the uh, late 2000s, but eventually died to, to ex- expressly do that. Um, you know, and, and these, these claims, I think, you know, continue to fail in court. And so now we have uh, these three big cases, and Hively is the biggest of the three so far, um, that have percolated up into the uh, appellate courts. And, um, you know, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals overturned a 1984 decision, which said that, uh, I think, the of terms... Theirs, uh, overturned okay. an opinion of theirs, right? Yeah. Yes. And the, I believe the terms they actually used were transsexuals and homosexuals um, don't get coverage under Title VII, they're not protected. Um, and so that, that precedent had done a lot of damage throughout the years um, to these sexual orientation discrimination claims and transgender rights. Um, and and it, so, so, Anthony, what was the original argument? So, I mean, you could go yeah. back to Title VII. Basically, it outlaws discrimination in the workplace, uh, adverse employment actions um, because of, and it lists a bunch of things, and one of them is because of sex, right? I mean, that's the, isn't that, basically it's, those three words that are the genesis of this whole debate, right? What does because of sex mean in, exactly. in this context? And what was the original rationale? I mean, it, we'll get to the kind of the, the two rationales discussed in, in Hively for why discrimination against, against gays is discrimination because of sex. Uh, but what was the original rationale for why, why firing someone because they're gay is not discrimination because of sex? Why did they ever, what, what was the rationale they gave for that? So, so the the Seventh Circuit's uh, decision in Ulane um, basically said sex means biological sex, and when you look at the plain meaning and this the, the general understanding um, of what sex means, both in you know 1984, but you know back in 1964 in particular when they enacted the Civil Rights Act, um, it was about men and women. And it was all about biological sex and sexual orientation um, was a completely different concept. 
Um, and, you know, so, so that was, that was kind of the, the, the driving force behind that particular decision and, um, some of these other cases and other circuits that followed suit or even in the fifth circuit predated you lane. So if you take as Um, a given, even the narrowest, even the narrowest reading of title seven on which everyone would agree, uh, that if you refuse to hire a person or if you fire a person, uh, because that person is a female, for example, right? Um, right. I advertise a job uh, posting in the newspaper, people apply for it, a woman applies for it. I say, no, I'm not going to hire you because I never hire females uh, to work in my company, right? Everyone agrees that's a violation, even the people with the narrowest reading of the statute, right? Right. I mean, there's no way you can, you know, that that is clearly um, because of sex, uh, to say no women, you know, I will not hire a woman, I will not hire a man for this particular job. Um, you know, that, that is, that's as clear cut as it, as it gets. And I suppose if the Supreme Court had over time, uh, when it was asked a, a, a variety of different theories about what constitutes sex discrimination, I suppose if the Supreme Court had answered no instead of yes, when it was confronted with a bunch of variations. So for example, sexual harassment, the notion that, uh, you're, you're, conditioning someone's advancement on the job based on their willingness to uh, suffer various sexual indignities or exchange sexual behavior, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I suppose in theory, the Supreme Court said, no, that's 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 not because of the person's biological sex. That's, you know, unrelated to that. Uh, you know, of course, they didn't hold that. They held the contrary. But but had they held that sexual harassment claims are not valid Title VII claims, uh, we'd be in a different place. right? But they did approve those claims. Right. And, and so, so let's, if we kind of look back, let's start at the, the 1984 Ulane decision in the Seventh Circuit. Um, so 1984 was, it predated a number of uh, very important cases that did come up in the Supreme Court. Uh, the biggest one, perhaps, is uh, Pricewaterhouse v. Hopkins, uh, which was in the late 80s, and <clears throat> it, it involved um, Ann Hopkins, who was perceived by her, her colleagues as being um, overly masculine. Uh, they, they thought that she was too aggressive and, and, and there was a, you know, she dressed in a way that, um, you know, wasn't feminine enough. And so she basically, you know, they, they denied her um, advancement um, within the company. And it was largely due to these, these sex stereotypes that they had. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily because of her biological sex. Um, it wasn't um, it wasn't an idea that, or there wasn't a company policy that women couldn't advance beyond a certain uh, level. But you know, she was certainly discriminated against because of sex, according to the Supreme Court in that case, because she failed to conform to gender norms. Um, and so that, so this whole this, so that was a big case because it introduced it introduced um, into Title Seven this idea that if you don't conform to what people expect you to behave. Um, or you don't you don't behave in a way that people expect you to, given your sex. That is discrimination because of sex. So now yes, let, let's slow, let's slow down that and unpack that just a little bit further because it seems to me like it's an important. It's a in fact it, it may be the most important step in the development of this stuff along the road to where we are now. At least as it hits me as a as someone who doesn't focus on this area a whole lot. But um, but that that Price Waterhouse step uh, basically 
when you ask yourself, how could that possibly be discrimination on the basis of sex, uh, that you're that you are disfavoring her because she doesn't conform to your view of a particular gender, right? Because the person who says I've done nothing wrong could say, look, I don't have anything against women as such. Plenty of women work here. They just need to conform to (laughs) the appropriate behavior for their gender. The reason why someone could look at Title VII and say, no, that is discrimination on the basis of sex is because you do this sort of mental exercise of imagining a male with the same traits as the plaintiff, female, would you be disfavoring him on the ground that he was aggressive, on the ground that he was dressing a certain way? If the answer to those questions is no, then it's inappropriate for you to treat her that way. Do Am I understanding correctly the sort of but-for test that that the Supreme Court sort of blessed in Pricewaterhouse? Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's a good way to characterize it. Well, um, but, it, but it goes quite but, far. I mean, so, yeah. so, so because of sex— you one way to realize that in cases is to say, well, that's the same as but for sex, right? So, but for the fact that she was a woman, this never would have happened, right? Uh, would not have been fired, but for the right. fact. Hold so, all the other factors constant. Right. Change that one, right? Do you get a different outcome? If yes, there's a there's a problem the statute's designed to address, and this is going to run headlong into all kinds of problems with that but for test, right? So one way that I thought about this is I was reading your Potemkin Village piece, Anthony, and, the, and, and reading over Hively, was um, that, that a lot of these cases involve, I mean, so it, it, the first case Joe mentions is someone fire, someone refuses to hire or fire simply because of the gender or sex. Again, early on, they use, these are interchangeable for, mm-hmm. the, for the court right now. Uh, because you're a woman. So, oh, I don't hire women. So that's a clear, you know, you were not hired because, because of sex. But a lot of these cases are instances of employment actions that I guess the right pattern is to think of it as, um, well, I took this action because you're a woman who, and then did blah, 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 right? Where if you change the, the gender, it would have come out differently. So it's not, that you're, it's not just that you're a woman. It's, a, it's woman plus some thing or man plus some thing. So, you know, in, in the case of, um, uh, of just being gay and, and engaging in conduct, like gay conduct, it's a man who sleeps with a man or a man who uh, is attracted to other men and does some conduct, you know, consistent therewith. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, you could always back that up and say, well, if it, if it had been a woman who had engaged in that kind of conduct, it would have been heterosexual and the employer wouldn't have done the same thing. But you can also get to this, like, a, a woman who goes into a men's bathroom um, is, and then is fired, or a man who goes into a woman's bathroom and is fired. Now, I don't want to get into the bathroom stuff right away, although we can get there you know, eventually, but certainly at the time of this legislation, I don't think anybody would have thought that a man who kept wandering into the women's bathroom at work couldn't be fired because of that conduct. Well, they, I mean, I, I don't think that anything has changed since then in that, I mean, we, we, we should probably get to the bathroom thing on its own later. Yeah. Um, you know, cause that, that's a, that's a whole nother, um, kind of distinct issue, I think in, in a lot of ways. Well, I don't think it's distinct. I, I mean, I think it's, I do. I, I don't understand that hypothetical at all. I mean, it seems to me that if you, that, that you could say, w- would you, would you discipline a worker who persistently enters uh, the bathroom of the the other sex or gender hold for a moment the fact that 
um, people can be transgender, like mm-hmm. hold, yeah, bracket. put that yeah. bracket that for yeah, a sec, yeah. right? Uh, take people at their apparent gender at, at face right. value, uh, a worker who's persistently going into the bathroom of the other gender and is disrupting the workplace in that sense, you'd say, ah, I, it's not because he's a man I'm disciplining him. It's because he's engaging in this. That sounds to me like the anti-loving argument, right? That I'm, I'm not disciplining you because you're a woman as such. It, I, I, I treat men and women the same. They have to conform to their gender roles. And this particular role is to go into the correct bathroom. Yes. And if we hold constant the fact that that might be complicated by a transgender identity, right? Um, it seems to me it's it, you, you might try to map it on to the, the, the loving style argument, but that's, but it, it's sort of a silly argument in the context of it, having people sex separated in their washrooms is not viewed as uh, creating a caste system in the way well, that so, so white supremacy exactly. and anti-miscegenation statutes right, right. are engaging in a creation and of a caste system. Was, that's all I was trying to push on, right? Is that this idea that we can translate because of sex to but for and solve all of our problems without going full Posner. Okay, well, I, we're going to talk about Posner. I didn't highly. hear anyone make that claim in this conversation. Right. That, that I can do a but for move and it, so, it quote, solves well, all problems. Is, I, mean, I was trying well, to describe what the, price held right, well, and how that might well, map well, on. But let's hear, let's hear Anthony talk about well, what the Hively majority did, because I think the because of sex is the same as holding gender constant and seeing if the same thing would have happened leads us into that, in, yeah. into that problem. But So there, there's a couple other interests, a few extra, or I would say one big development um, in the, that happened, or two actually, in the interim after... Price Waterhouse, um, and before we even get to Hively, uh, which is, of course, the Ancal decision, which the Supreme Court in, in the late 90s recognized that same-sex uh, harassment was actionable under Title VII. Um, and that's a, Justice Scalia wrote this opinion that talks about <clears throat> that we're, we're governed by the language of the statute and that we need to look not just to the principal evil that Congress intended to, to remedy, but reasonably related ones. So, so that, that's kind of an important note. Um, and then we get in 2015, the EEOC um, makes a uh, has a ruling in uh, Baldwin versus Fox that says uh, Title VII should in or does already uh, pro- prohibit sexual orientation discrimination under the under sex the sex discrimination um, ban. So now we get to to Hively, um, and there are, there's really three there's, there's three reasons that the court. Uh, explains um, that sex discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination are effectively one and the same, and 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 as a consequence, sexual sexual orientation discrimination claims are are colorable under Title VII's existing framework. And the first one, uh, you know, as Christian was was alluding to, is is the but the very clean uh, but for um, interpretation of of the of the. The statute's plain language. So, um, I think the best example is is one that the EOC gives, um, where a you know if a, if a woman has a picture of her spouse um, on her desk at work, and that creates some kind of reaction from an employer, and then terminates the woman because of her you know same sex spouse's picture. Um, if you were to place her with a man, and the man was the employee, and is uh, you know, he had the same picture of his spouse on on the desk, and that would not have resulted in an adverse employment reaction, uh, adverse employment action. Um, then that's a clean but for example, or but for causation example of, of sex discrimination. Um, if you just replace the sex of the person, um, 
so that that's that's the first rationale. Um, but the, the the next two are a little bit more complicated. I think. Well, one is the one is more complicated than the other, even. Um, which is the, this idea of gender nonconformity going back to Price Waterhouse? Um, a lot of courts had had refused for for a long time to acknowledge sexual orientation uh, discrimination claims under this um, nonconformity rationale by saying um, that that the nonconformity was really about uh, femininity and masculinity, and because not all gay men are feminine, and not all um, lesbians are are masculine. You cannot use this gender nonconformity sex stereotyping uh, theory to cover all sexual orientation claims. Um, and so, you know, some courts would allow um, you know gay men who were uh, perceived as effeminate and uh, treated hostily in the workplace. Um, they allowed those claims to go through, but if you were perceived as uh, as being masculine and still discriminated against based on your sexual orientation, you had no claim. Um, and so there, there's been a lot of courts have grappled with, you know, what is the line between uh, nonconformity and sexual orientation discrimination and trying to parse them out. And they've had a quite a hard time doing so. And a, and a number of district courts have said this is just wholly unworkable. Um, and the, the, the Hively Court and, and parroted, a, a, I think, a great line from a district court in Connecticut, which basically said, in modern America, homosexuality is the ultimate form of gender nonconformity. Um, and so all, all people who have same-sex attractions uh, are inherently nonconforming individuals. Uh, they're not behaving in a way that uh, a large number of Americans expect them to behave based on their biological sex. So, re- so if you take that view, then the first rationale and the second rationale uh, sort of merge into each other, that, that you can use a but-for test, uh, and if, if every uh, gay or lesbian person is, is engaged in that gender nonconformity, then the Pricewaterhouse rule tells you that that's uh, actionable, um, uh, then you, those two things together are, are sort of a double-barreled theory for why the claim should be able to proceed. Exactly. Exactly. And then, and then the third one, um, and I think this one, quite frankly, is one of the more interesting uh, theories, and, and I think stronger ones, is this idea of association. Um, now, in the 11th Circuit and the 2nd Circuit, there are two cases. Uh, the, the 11th Circuit is called Parr, and the 2nd Circuit is Holcomb. Um, they recognize that you can bring a Title VII claim based on uh, adverse employment actions taken on account of your associations with third parties, even if the, you know, the animus directed towards the employee was not about the employee's status themselves. So, for example, in PAR, uh, it was a, a white man who applied for, for a job at an insurance company. It was de- it was found out in the process that um, he was married to a black woman, and the insurance company objected to his interracial marriage. So, you know, this is a it's a racist group of folks who running running this insurance company. Uh, so they they obviously have no problem with him as a white man. So they're not discriminating against him because of his race per se. But the the Eleventh Circuit held that. Title VII recognizes that his association 
um, with his, you know, his wife, who was not white, um, he, he could pursue a Title VII claim based on his interracial marriage. Uh, and the Second Circuit held, held, held the same. Um, and so now uh, in, the, in the Seventh Circuit, uh, the Seventh Circuit never recognized, they must have never just had a case, um, but they've never recognized uh, interracial couples as having um, you know, an associational claim for, for employment discrimination or a person who's in an interracial relationship. Um, but the Seventh Circuit said that, that the logic of the Parr and the Holcomb decisions followed and was convincing, uh, um, was convincing enough to apply here as well, and that um, if a person is discriminated against because of their, the sex of their partner, um, that, that also gives rise to a Title VII claim. And I think that's a, a very convincing, um, a very convincing argument or theory. It's, it's uh, quite narrow, isn't it? I mean, that, so, so it deals with this, what I think of as kind of a conceptual challenge of it, of trying to hold on to some norms related to status, which I think we do in the gender space. We don't really in the race space anymore while at the same time promoting equality and, and, and trying to pretend as though this is logical and not political. So it, it deals with that problem by saying, well, in this one area of association, we will uh, allow kind of equality to completely fill the space. You know what I mean? And it, yeah. Because it doesn't, it doesn't deal with other cases like my bathroom case or, or here's another case. Or just single people. Um, imagine <laughs> imagine um, a lifeguard's uh, a job and, and they have a rule where, where – um, you know, lifeguards are up sitting on the chair and everything like that. And um, men don't wear tops. And one woman decides not to wear a top and is fired. Uh, what, you know, what result? Um, you know, the, 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 what I would say, the, the, um, the extension of the but-for argument uh, takes you to a kind of a radical gender equality point, right? Mm-hmm. R- radical relative to certainly the political expectations at the time that the uh, Title VII was passed. And even yeah. in some cases now, um, and now there's a there's a little piece of the statute which it will f- probably frustrate you to hear me mention in this context because there is a doctrinal side path of of bona fide job qualification right. that is a way to try to cope with some of the you know sanding off some yep. of those rough edges. But and, and that deals with but situations that just recasts the issue. Some of the best cases there are ones where like. You know, if you're trying, if, if you're a theater company and you're casting a, a role for a woman, you can maybe insist on a woman to fill that role. Um, it, interesting transgender issues there, actually. But, but, but at least that the, the, those BFOQs, as they call them, that mm-hmm. that makes sense. I'm not so sure that for the that it has that that has anything to say about the topless lifeguard issue. But I think you would you might try to try to grapple with it that way. You might, but then yeah. you'd have to deal with. You know, so you would try to deny it has anything to do with gender and maybe it has to do with body shape. And then, but then you get into, well, what about a, a relatively, you know, flat chested woman for a woman and a, and a man who has pronounced breasts for a man and they could be, they could overlap quite a bit and just in terms of just, you know, geometry. Right. Uh, and then you realize, oh, it's not about geometry of bodies. It's about expectations about what you see in terms of men and women. And, and can that be recognized in a, in a workplace without running afoul of this principle? Right. And, and Anthony's third um, you know, the, the third doctrinal path that you, that you um, say, that you talk about there, Anthony, is one which says, you know, we're not going to get into all of these questions. We're going to deal with the issue of, of gay relationships on its own. And we have a well-worn way of doing that. It, the path was blazed by loving and some other cases. And we can deal with these cases without dealing with all of the potentially radical 
changes which would be wrought by a, a purely kind of a logical reading that's because uh, although of Although again, I would say it do, it does seem to it does seem to run up against a problem of single people. Anthony, what do you what do you do in that context? I, so I, I actually don't think that that raises a, uh, quite that problem. So um, these associational claims have also been extended um, to. So for example, there's a there's a case um, in Alabama. I think it was Alabama um, where a, a white employee was known to associate with uh, black employees and the employer didn't like it and fired the white employee as a consequence. And he had an associational claim. Mm. Um, and, and there was a, there's another, there was another one in New York, um, where there was a hostile work environment and, um, a man who was very closely associated with a woman, um, somehow got dragged into the situation and, and raised, uh, that his association his non-romantic association with, uh, you know, this female coworker, um, gave, gave, gave rise to an associational claim, uh, for, for sex, uh, sex discrimination under title seven. And the court said that that was, um, that was viable. So, you know, I think that that could actually be extended to the idea of, you know, if a, if a, you know, a, a gay, lesbian or bisexual person is associated, um, <clears throat> is associated with the, you know, the LGBT community more broadly in some way. Um, so, you know, you, so you can be single, you just have to have gay friends. I mean, I, I don't mean yeah. to be flip, but it's 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 not an argument that that does a whole lot for me personally. I don't find it particularly. It's not that it's not persuasive. I understand the the principle. The principle sounds perfectly fine, but I just don't think it gets to um, the in the way that the but for test plus the insight that sexual orientation is the ultimate act of gender nonconformity in in, in our culture. Um, uh, that to me doesn't, isn't encumbered by all these issues about, well, are you seeing anybody? Do you have gay friends? Do you da, 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 da. That all sounds very weird to me, actually. Yeah. I, I think, I think the reason why I, I, I like this theory so much is for two, two reasons. One, I think it's a family law side of me, um, mm-hmm. that says, Hey, this is interesting. And, and part of the reason for that is because I think the marriage litigation, um, has, has really exposed, um, the way sex stereotypes get fed into um, these anti-same-sex marriage laws, right? Like women should reproduce and men should do this. And, you know, uh, children need a mother and a father because of, you know, they need that balance. Um, you know, all these awful arguments expose, I think, the sex stereotypes and how they played into anti-gay discrimination. And I think that's one side of it. But the other side of it is I, I think between all three of these theories, it shows how um, you know, all, all the, you know, all the ways that we, um, protect race discrimination equally apply with, I think, almost equal force, um, in the sex discrimination context for, um, gays, lesbians, and bisexual persons. Um, and I, and I think that that's, to me, um, to me, that's, that's, uh, that's important because of course we know that unlike in the constitutional context, right, um, title seven, puts each of the protected classes on equal footing. Um, and so the, the more that you can demonstrate to courts that all the theories that apply, uh, that, we, that we apply in the race context um, can also apply in the sex-based discrimination context for sexual orientation discrimination claims, I, th- I think that's an incredibly important um, aspect of, of, the, of the Hively decision in particular. Um, and even the judge, uh, Chief Judge Katzman in the concurring opinion in uh, Christensen in the Second Circuit, uh, made that point that you know all these theories are equally viable, um, no matter who who you're applying them to. 
and it definitely seems less um it definitely seems less important if you were to resolve the the cases like the Hively case or or the uh, recent Eleventh Circuit decision uh, that that went the other way, at least at the panel stage. But it but it it certainly seems less sweeping if all you say is again using those first two theories and not the third. If all you say is, yeah, um, uh, sexual orientation as such uh, is not protected by Title Seven. Sex is. So if you plead your complaint as a complaint about gender nonconformity, we will adjudicate that case uh, because that's covered under the statute, uh, C. Price Waterhouse. And uh, if it looks as if, for example, you could even decide Hively this way, you could say, look, this is a pro se complaint, right? She goes to the EEOC, she mislabels it as sexual orientation, and they sort of go along with her misunderstanding. Uh, then she comes to court with her right to sue letter once again, not really labeling it uh, artfully. Uh, but it, you can it, plead it as gender nonconformity. That's how the district court should have treated it uh, and uh, adjudicate it accordingly. Right. It's yeah. uh, it is, that's truly a narrow way to cover sexual orientation w- by actually denying <laughs> that you're doing it. But saying, look, as long as you plead it as gender nonconformity, we can do something with it. Why, right. like, and, and, and importantly, too, I, I think it's incredibly important to note with the um, there's a particular problem that can arise for bisexual persons. So, for example, let's let's take, uh, you know, a person, a, a bisexual woman who is actually in a relationship with a man. Um, right. The, the but for uh, the, you know, just a plain but for uh, analysis and the associational analysis is is much weaker there right if if it you know robust at all um and that's where the the nonconformity uh aspect of or the nonconformity theory that's derived from price waterhouse is so important because uh you know that that particular individual um you know even though her partner is you know fits within traditional you know men you know opposite sex couples and and those kinds of norms uh her bisexuality in of itself uh, you know, is embodies not uh, an issue of nonconformity. So, so I think it's um, important to emphasize how important the nonconformity theory is, particularly for for the bisexual potential bisexual plaintiffs, um, as opposed to the other two, which may not provide them a remedy. If you know, depending on uh, those particular that particular person's life circumstances. So, we would also have to think about what you do about the plaintiff who is straight. Uh, and who gets fired? Let's say they work at a a, a bar that's uh, basically a gay a gay person's bar, a lesbian bar, uh, and they get fired from working their bartender job because they're straight, right? This gender nonconformity story doesn't sound like it's doing is going to be very helpful. Uh, but maybe I'm maybe I haven't thought that through carefully enough. But uh, so so I, I think when we get when we get straight plaintiffs raising sexual orientation claims. Unlike the Hively case and the 11th Circuit case, where the, I think they were gay plaintiffs, um, uh, I think there's another wrinkle there yet again, right? Of, of sort of how you analyze it. Yeah, that that that, that could I, that definitely uh, you know raises an issue for the, the last two. Um, you know, I think the stronger claim there would be just a plain reading and, and uh, you know about four analysis. But yeah, I think you're right that certainly puts a wrinkle in it. Although I'll say as an aside. Um, I don't think that'd be a problem in any gay bar that I've ever been to. So <laughs> we, we, welcome, we welcome our straight bartenders in Boys Town. That is, that is for sure. And, and as uh, a former Chicago resident, I'm well aware of that fact. 
Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so I think that would be, we'd be safe from that, that issue there. But, but I, I want to, I, you know, the, the fact that we sometimes will use a, a narrower version of the rule to apply to certain situations and sometimes resort to, but for, I mean, all this goes to whether we can avoid the conclusion of judge Posner and Hively, which I think his, yeah, opinion, let's talk about the opinion. It, we haven't really, well, done I mean, that. his opinion is the one I, and, and a way of kind of backing into that is to ask whether this deceptively simple because of sex uh, language is, is this an area of law, which is susceptible to, is the problem here that we just can't find a rule that does what everyone wants to do? Or is it an area of law where to, to pick up on heart again, um, you know, the, the, the best way to do it is to, um, is to create, is to engage in law through the use of authoritative examples. You know, and, and it's interesting, even when you're explaining the but for test, you point to the EOC's example, right, of the pictures on the on the desk, right? And right. it's interesting about what's doing all the work there. In other words, are we are we taught about the rule by the example, as the example illustrative, or in fact is the law that example, right, as carried over into other cases? In other words, that's one authoritative example. And and I think Judge Posner's opinion, which says, look, you know, frankly, everyone, you know, no one who passed this law really thought it was going to apply to prohibit um, uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And what's changed is not that we suddenly understand something about what they did or what, what you know, whether it's original intention or original public meaning. It's, it's not that we suddenly understand something about what they thought or what people who elected them thought that they had done in 1964, uh, you know, that hasn't changed. What's changed is us and our attitude about this principle, which was launched in, in 1964. Our set of acceptable examples has changed. So I'm wondering, like, what are the possibilities for, for, um, for law here, for, for how to construct a, a system of law which treats, you know, like cases alike? And, um, you know, I know what I think about it. I'm, I'm ready to embrace kind of the, the radical implications of the but for clause, the cases I was mentioning earlier. I just don't think most people are. I don't think most people are going to accept that that women have to have an equal right to to go topless at swimming pools these days. I, I would I would accept that, but I, maybe most most people are not. And and if that's not true, if you, if you ha- if you deny that that example is 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 kind of covered by Title Seven, then your theory of Title Seven becomes much 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 more complicated right away. Either you have to invoke um, what, what Joe started with with the subjugated classes, or you have to say, that, or you have to build out from examples about nonconformity. So, are you saying you, you Posner's opinion, uh, the analysis in Posner's opinion that is separate from the majority, because he concurs fully with the majority and says, "I also have some additional thoughts." Yeah. Except so, his additional... the logic of the opinion, though, is that the with, to the extent the majority is talking about like plain readings and what it means, that it's not correct. I mean, so well, I'm not sure about that. But yeah. but put it aside right. and say, just focus on his additional reasons. Are you saying his additional reasons would support the plaintiff who makes the claim that I shouldn't have to wear a top at work as a lifeguard because my male colleagues don't have to? No, I don't think it would. I don't. I don't think the logic because you, that... you were talking about these things together. So I'm trying to understand what what. Right, because I think Posner's vision of what law is doing is it's about judges achieving acceptable results using language and authoritative examples as anchors in mm-hmm. an analysis, right? Because, because that's, those are the data uh, which will surround the issue and upon which the public and others will make, you know, in, you know, whether legislators or other judges, will make judgments about the acceptability of a judge's analysis, right? And right. so his job as a judge is pragmatically to get to a reasonable result given all the legal data. Yeah. And, uh, and some of the legal data is the simplicity 
and the generality of the language used in the statute. Right. So he seems to differentiate between types of statutes and yeah. that some statutes are, are, have this more open texture to them this more open quality that lets you say, yeah, whatever people thought about sex discrimination in 1964, and we could talk about the actual history of the enactment where the people who introduced that provision thought it would kill the bill and, and or thought it was a joke, right? So right. if you really wanted to think subjectively what they believed, you, you, you're off on quite a detour. Yeah. So he says, don't do that. Just think about what we think today. And, and he goes yeah. beyond what, what, um, what Bill Eskridge, I think, would say in this article, Super Statutes, right, talking about how there are some statutes which, because of their importance, because of the, of, uh, the history of litigation and the, the, the kind of public focus over a long time, have achieved a level where they are kind of more like constitutional law in that they are a source of principles and not just mm -hmm. an, an isolated authority to be applied. And so that, that could explain using Posner-type reasoning in Title VII. I just think Posner goes beyond that, right? It's not just Title VII that gets this treatment. It's, it, oh, right. He would use it a lot. <laughs> right. But so, so there are ways where you could kind of cabin this kind of like Title VII as principle and where you are kind of stitching together authoritative examples using principles that you derive from those examples and then using kind of a common law-like mechanism to get to acceptable answers. Like you, you could justify doing that in a Title VII case, but not in... Uh, you know, pick your other favorite statute that hasn't achieved the level of super statute. But so, yeah, so go ahead. I think there. So what's interesting about this, I, I think there's been there's a number of statutes which I, I think like Title seven um, Congress, you know, uh, saw it more as a um, having a common law, you know, flavor to it and, and just kind of kicking it to, to judges um, to develop over time. One of the aspects of Title seven, which I think is persuasive um, is the you know the idea that if title seven one of title seven's more overarching purposes is to take what we would prohibit uh, in the state uh, action context and and you know would say as a matter of constitutional laws impermissible discrimination and try to import some of those values into title seven then as the con as constitutional law evolves over time and particularly in this context to recognize LGBT um, you know rights that Title VII should, uh, you know, evolve along with it to some extent. Um, you know, so I think that that's an uh, important. But it, the other thing is, I, you know, there there are statutes where, you know, in the fifties, the one I'm thinking of right now, um, there there was an uh, interstate railroad um, statute which which mandated, um, you know, was talking about separate, you know, accommodations, and and for the longest time. Uh, it was, I guess it was the Interstate Railroad uh, Commission said, well, it, this, the statute mandates separate but equal, separate but equal. Um, and then all, around, all of a sudden, 1955, they said, no, it, it requires full integration. Now, when the, the, the statute was written in the, the late 19th century, I don't think anyone would have said, oh, yeah, the uh, you know, members of Congress thought that, that you know, integration of railroad cars, cars would, would be required um, as a result. But um, you know, that evolved over time in, and it evolved in, uh, I, you know, I, I think in, um, you know, a relationship you know, where it's not, it, it evolved in the context of Brown versus Board and some of these other um, high profile cases coming up through the courts in the, the mid 50s. Um, and even Title VII, you know, disparate impact. I, you know, the, the idea that, that members of Congress would have thought of that being a, a, a thing, um, you know, I, I don't, I can't see that. Um, you know, Price Waterhouse and on call, you know, this idea of same sex sexual harassment, 
um, in the workplace being actionable. No one in 1964, I think, would have thought of that or, you know, a masculine woman having protections under Title VII. So I don't you know, I, I don't think that we've ever really um, been, you know, strict, uh, you know, found our or the courts of earth saw themselves as being strictly bound by what the folks in 1964 thought, particularly, as you know, Joe pointed out, given the, the very um, interesting and thin legislative history behind particularly the, the sex discrimination component. And, um, and that's true whether you're talking about folks in 1964 as being speakers, you know, original intentions or audience, original public meaning. Right. right. And, and right. the other thing, you know, and, and I, I've made this point to my own students, too, you know, do I, I can't I would love to get in the mind of some folks who voted for uh, the Civil Rights Act and to see if they thought that interracial relationships right in the associational context would um, would get coverage under Title seven because of course, uh, you know that predate the, the the Civil Rights Act predates loving by by three years or so. So you know th- there's there's a lot of things that we I think that we've done with Title seven that may not necessarily reflect what people thought at the time it might do. Um, you know, and I, am okay with that, but I, I think judge Poser's concurrence, um, I think part of my reaction, my negative reaction to it is because I thought to myself, please don't say this. Uh, we all, <laughs> we all know that there's some truth to this, yeah. but please don't say this. Um, that's not helpful. Um, so that was kind of my first reaction, but I, but I think on the, the, you know, the other side is, um, you know, I, I don't think that, that this is a huge stretch and I, and I think it, you know, just re, re, you know, reflects our evolving understanding of the relationship between sex and sexuality in a way that's really not all that different than, you know, Ann Hopkins' case in Price Waterhouse. The, the but I don't think he's saying it's, I mean, I think he's saying this is how we read all statutes. And, and, and I think he's, I'm sympathetic to the opinion because I, I think he's, I, I, I might have treated a little differently. I think he's tapping into, an, there's another strain of, of thought about how to, how to read and update statutes, which, um, which maybe emphasizes a bit more that it's not that courts have ultimate authority over these policies, but that they have a role to play in an ongoing dialogue with Congress. So Congress, you know, this is the updating idea, which is not just due to Posner here, but also to, to Eskridge and to Calabresi, you know, common law for the age of statutes. It's this idea that, that, that institutions can sometimes work better together and dialogue, and, and especially if you recognize courts don't have the final word. And if Congress right. thinks that this is not a constitutional decision, if the Supreme Court were to uphold the decision here, and Congress thinks, no, we don't want to include uh, sexual orientation, they could always pass a statute saying that it wasn't included. Now, there's a question about, I guess you get into a Romer-type issue about about whether the Congress had a, a reason to do that other than animus. But, um, you know, this is part of the very complicated political mix of working out questions like this, I think. Now, I, I like, and I mean, I, I certainly am sympathetic. I, I like the idea of, um, you know, th- these inner branch conversations, dialogues, you know, I, I've written co- a couple of my articles actually have really honed in on this idea, mm-hmm. right. Of, of the, the different institutions, you know, engaging in this dialectic conversation, um, to produce what I think is generally a better, better results. Um, you know, so so I certainly am sympathetic and 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 not even sympathetic. I endorse that idea. So I'm and I'm all about dynamic statutory interpretation, all the rest. But yeah. I don't like how he phrased it. I think, and maybe that's it's not so much of me disagreeing with where he's coming from as much as this idea of you know I forget the phrase that he used off the top. You just mentioned it. Um, you, what is it? Updating, right? Yeah. I, I don't like that. 
Well, some, well that, let, that, let, me, let me ask you, let me, let me get you guys on the hook about this, okay? And then maybe we can back into the Posner debate by just getting cards on the table about this. What do you think about my lifeguard example? Should, should, should woman lifeguard who is required to wear a top have a cause of action under Title VII? I, I think not. I, I lean towards not. I think, I think that, to be honest, I think a, um, there's, a, there's been a constitutional challenge in New York, actually, I believe, um, a couple of years ago about women, requirements for women to wear shirts in public. Um, and if I recall, I think the court struck some, struck some New York City regulation down or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. I think that you would have to have the constitutional claim adjudicated first before um, you could get to the point where Title Set or a Title Seven claim would be successful. Right. Otherwise, uh, yeah, otherwise, I, I think it would be a bona fide. Yeah. You know, no. No. Work. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I ask because uh, be, not because I'm necessarily super interested in exactly how you come out on this question, but but in order to understand better how we should decide a Title Seven case in an area in which gender norms are still. Uh, still predominate our intuitions, okay? And uh, it, it's just that the, you know, the, the idea that you can fire someone because they are gay and simply because they are gay seems, among many of us, like outdated and retrograde, right? And it, it's a, it, it seems related to gender in a way that is, um, well, you know, out, outmoded and 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 evil, right? But because we understand the harms to people yeah. who are either us or like us, and so I, I'm curious as to what the reaction to that case says about how we should decide such cases, because I think once you say that she can't win, you've ruled out a pure but-for analysis, and you've merged into saying, no, we need to do this using common law reasoning from authoritative examples, or some combination of but-for in some contexts, but not in others. This is like the relational idea, and I I'm not sure. So, uh, Joe, you're nodding. I mean, how do you well, think well, about I, it? Well, I, I agree that uh, the, the, so the sort of authoritative examples uh, that get in a process that gets launched by a broadly worded statute uh, that Posner endorses. And I think he's thinking, and he, and he talks about the fact that he's thinking very much in the mold of the Sherman Act and adjudication under the antitrust laws, uh, where by contrast to Title Seven, the Supreme Court has said explicitly, in fact, quite recently, in a case called Legion, uh, a, a resale price maintenance case in the antitrust area. Um, the Sherman Act is an explicit common law delegation. The Supreme Court said that about the Sherman Act. So, so they're prepared to say that about some federal statutes. Uh, I think Posner sees that as a methodology that works with a very wide range of statutes. Right. Um, I, I definitely see the benefit of approaching it that way in the context of at least some, because I teach antitrust, so I see the benefit it's had there. And I can see the benefit it has in the context of a super statute in, in that vein of thinking, right? Um, and I'm also very taken with Judge Wood's ability to, to sort of work through the precedents in a careful way and say, what are some insights about how these legal principles operate that we develop, not because they're authoritative examples, but because they help us understand conceptually how these things operate together as principles and what might we deduce from that, right? I think there's a lot to be gained from doing that too. Um, and, and I think that's why she got all the votes for that opinion that she got, including Posner's and Easterbrook's. Uh, so but he, but he would say it's the, 
I think, I mean, I, I don't want to say what he would say, but I mean, one way of, of criticizing that is that it is a lawyerly opinion, which is meant to be um, uh, immunized a little bit from the most obvious kind of slapdown you could get from a higher court. But, but also, I mean, it's beautifully written, and I agree with almost all of it, uh, her, her opinion. But it, it, it acts as though these, uh, these words, because of sex, can take on a meeting, can take on the meaning that they've always had if we just look hard enough at the cases that we've decided. And I think Posner's point is, uh, again, I think, um, that we are giving it a meaning as we decide these cases. And these are basically political judgments about what people now are willing to accept. Yeah. And, and that and, just seems more accurate to me. And, and maybe, maybe like Anthony, you think we shouldn't more, have said that. It may be more accurate in a sense. At the same time, when you think about uh, the judicial role, in a complicated institutional setting, um, the the notion that the the very lawyerliness of Judge Wood's opinion is a is a way to evidence a kind of um, carefulness and a kind of very small scale motion one at a time, right? Not a charging ahead large scale motion. You know, who cares what anyone else thinks? Um, that 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 judging it partakes more of the former than the latter, right? Legislating can take can partake more of the latter. Like if we want to make a radical change in a statute, we can. We can go right ahead and do that if we want to. Um, I there's something I think that's uh, there's something true to the Anglo-American legal tradition that's captured by that sense of lawyerly yeah. presentation of a set of reasons. But I, I think her opinion is not like it's not like we've decided A and now we're deciding A plus epsilon. Right. It's more like we've decided A and B and C, and now we're going to decide something which is much more than A plus B plus C. Right. I mean, and is this sui generis? Is it just titles like maybe it's super statutes is the answer? Is yeah, this but like, the, you know, how, that, and how many other cases does does here's this, why I think that's principle not, like text is it affected by really sea changes in public attitudes over a short time? Here's who I think you're leaving out yeah. when you say that about you know, the, the, the judicial decision is you're, you're leaving out the litigants, the parties and their lawyers. And the fact that over time, over several decades, uh, this argument about sexual orientation discrimination being a form of sex discrimination, this argument's been in the literature for, literally for decades. Right. Uh, and was used in the early marriage cases like yeah. Bear Against Lou in Hawaii and, and the other things Anthony talks Anthony's about in his right. paper. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. so, so this idea has been out there for a very long time. And so the, the litigants and the lawyers who, who themselves are trying to help us understand fully the, these concepts and how they can interoperate with each other, um, They've been at it for a long time, and they and and it has ultimately, the Seventh Circuit's opinion last week is an indication of this. Ultimately, it is succeeding, right? Um, so I just feel like you're the the way you're describing the the judicial decision kind of leaves out all of that history in a way that I don't think is accurate. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, the, the argument's been there for a while, but this is a. I mean, I think this is this is a big deal. This opinion is a very, very big. deal. Oh, I agree, and and they all seem quite aware that it is. I mean, all well, the uh, judges' writing seem aware that it is. And, and the other thing I would say too about, and I think it's important. Some of these earlier cases, um, one of the one that sticks out in my mind is the Fifth Circuit case, Blum, 
um, which is binding precedent in the 11th Circuit. Um, it was, I think it was 1979. But, you know, they, 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 a lot of these decisions like Blum had these one, you know, one or two throwaway lines where they said, oh, homosexuals don't get covered, the end. Um, and there was no actual analysis. Um, and, I, and I think, frankly, you don't really see many cases give it, uh, give these claims any sort of robust analysis worth uh, hanging your hat on um, or taking seriously until um, you know, the, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and of course, I think they came out the wrong way, but they, they certainly, you know, I, I, you know, again, while these claims have been brought into the federal courts for, for a long, long time, um, you know, they, they almost seems as if the judges just laughed at, you know, laughed them away, um, and, and saw them as having no merit. So, um, to the extent that, you know, that the arguments have been made more and more over time, um, you know, it, it's only, it hasn't been that long since any, you know, rigorous legal analysis has been applied to, to them. Um, but Anthony, and, don't, don't you think that that supports judge Posner's argument in the following way. Let's, let's suppose that reality worked the way that he describes that in fact, you know, whatever they say, judges take language, which can be interpreted in different ways and try to reach pragmatic, acceptable results with them. And so I would think that if that's the way that things worked, but also if you thought that judges being unelected and concerned with legitimacy talk in legalistic terms, all right, so this is, we're kind of relitigating legal realism here, but suppose, suppose that's the way that it works. I, what I would expect is for um, a, a legal innovation, an extension of rights in a novel way or something like that, uh, as it's, as, which is working alongside a social change, which is gathering support over time, as gay rights have, right, from the dawn of the AIDS crisis through kind of the early 90s, kind of awakening to um, uh, lots and lots of people coming out to kind of final victory, uh, I say final victory in terms of Obergefell, but obviously the struggle goes on. Uh, so that is happening alongside these legal arguments. What I would expect to happen is the first set of arguments comes in from uh, kind of path-breaking um, activists and, and litigants, and they are laughed off, right? I mean, is, what was the original gay marriage case, which was like, you know, this wasn't even... Uh, they, Baker, they, Baker, oh, Baker v. Nelson, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, Baker which was... Nelson, a, yeah, you can hardly give a case less... <laughs> Right, right. Less, less consideration than that was given. Right. So, so first, like, you know, this is not even a case. And then, okay, this is a case, but this is a bad argument, comma, because, and then you live, list all kinds of reasons and you cite cases. And then the argument comes up again, and maybe you give it more of a rationalistic response. Like if this were the case, then this would happen and everybody hates this other thing and therefore it can't be true. And then, you know, it's kind of keep pushing, keep pushing, and then you win. Right. And then someone accepts the argument because the principle of course is susceptible the, the logical form of the principle in, uh, in, in Title VII is, of course, susceptible to the result uh, that has finally been achieved. What has not been there is the political will to make that result a reality. In the same way that, I, that I'm arguing that, and I hate to come back to it again, that my lifeguard example is susceptible. That, but you need both. You don't just absolutely. need the political will. You also need the legal materials and a way to talk in a lawyerly fashion. That, you need both of those right. things to happen. But what I'm saying is that this is like Title VII... So legal realism ignores, I think, the degree to which the legalism is a is a part and parcel of your ability to achieve that that uh, insight well, what's, what's and outcome. causing what, right? I mean, so what, I, what? Well, that's the great thing about circles. You don't have to identify starting points, right? You you can you can we, have these dialectical relationships oh with boy. courts, legislators, the the public. Joe is going all Matthew McConaughey on me over and, here. With, <laughs> it's not true. He's actually tracing out a flat circle with his yeah, finger in yeah. in the studio. I mean. 
I just don't, I don't understand why, what your resistance is to uh, seeing the benefit of the development of legal concepts uh, and uh, understanding in legal materials. Uh, I, I reject, I mean, is it understanding? I mean, what, what is the, what is the state of knowledge which has changed? Well, I, so I, I mean, I think a part of it is a willingness to listen, which is part of this evolving, yep. right, evolving understandings. And I think it's quite right to say that the social, you know, social movements and, um, you know, the courts interacting with, you know, new litigants and the, you know, um, new litigants are willing to come forward because of the social movement success. And then, you know, you, you have this dialogue with Congress and the right, you, you have these whole, you know, you know, this very circular, messy process of, of change. Um, you know, I, th- I think my, pro- you know, I, I'm okay with that. I like that. And I think that's, that's generally a good thing. Um, I think my problem with what, you know, the way judge Posner put it is it's like judges are doing this. I, I don't know if you, well, I mean, he, it's almost as if, um, you know, judges aren't part of the dialogue, but they are a, a domineering part of the dialogue. And I don't, and I, that's how I read it, um, as not one part of this process where this evolving understanding and these legal tools work together to get a better result because of our, you know, you know, uh, a, a broader um, social consensus about what the law, you know, should look like. Um, it felt more top down to me. I don't know if that's, I mean, maybe, maybe it'll just take time for me to, you know, read it 10 more times and, you know, calm myself from, from the rage that I felt when I read it thinking, you know, again, why would you ever say this in public? <laughs> don't say um, this in, in polite company, even though it's true. Yeah. But, but, you know, cause I, I think it's true, but what I, I think the, the way I read it was just very, you know, again, was like, oh, well, this is judges doing this in this, not in a vacuum, but, you know, in a, in a, I don't know. I think it almost gave judges themselves too much credit as opposed to the whole legal apparatus and the social movements and the way that interacts with, the, you know, the other, the political branches and how that interacts with courts. And then, right. you know, there's a feedback from the courts. Right. And it's, and it's not, you know, I mean, you know, for example, um, you know, the courts in the marriage cases, right. You know, so much of that helped fuel the social movement and there was legislative pushback and then there was more, you know, pushback in the opposite direction from other uh, entities. And, you know, you know, eventually the tension was resolved, but I don't think any one group or actor or institution was wholly responsible for that change. Right. Um, and, and of course, the, the, I mean, the original public meaning originalists would, would say that this should all like, there's no problem with all this happening. It just shouldn't happen through the courts. And, and so what should happen here is, uh, you know, we can, the kind of analysis the court should engage in is to kind of construct a hypothetical listener who existed at the time of the 1964 act and try to figure out what that person would have thought because of sex meant at the time. And I'm not sure exactly, you know, there, but, but what's interesting about that is to the extent we want things to change, we can encourage Congress today to adopt exactly the same statutes, the statute with exactly the same words and a court, an original public meaning originalist court would interpret that differently. Because today, if I see you can't discriminate because of sex, um, I certainly think that that means that you can't fire someone because because they ha- they are in a a relationship with someone of the same sex. I, I, because it's obviously because of sex. It's just the way it seems and feels discriminatory. Whereas today, someone might think, well, of course you can fire the 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 woman who who goes topless it, 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 as a lifeguard. 
but maybe in 50 years, if they adopt exactly the same language with exactly the same statute, right, then possible. It, and so, and so the process of change, I think they would say can and should work, but it should work through legislative committees. It should work through. Uh, Although it's interesting that what, you know, the, well, I don't want to <laughs> get off on that tangent, but, I, but, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, in that sense, it may be that that Posner's language that that has been causing some discomfort uh, to one or more of us on one or more occasions uh, is really aimed at Judge Sykes, not at Judge Wood. Mm-hmm. That that what he's really trying to do is contrast uh, what he believes to be a realistic approach to judging with the dissent's uh, explanation and approach, which is which you might say is a, an effort to be just sort of a lifeless transmission belt. Right. That that what judges do is as as strictly and unimaginatively as possible, whether it's original public meaning or whatever your mechanism is, we're just we're just here to transmit, you know, energy and force from one mechanism to another mechanism without changing it in any way. Uh, And so I think he recoils and and is repelled by and recoils from that notion that judges are just transmission belts. Yeah. And And so he wants to address that. Whereas Judge Wood's opinion, although it doesn't say what he says, it also doesn't kind of mischaracter what I think is a mischaracterization, speaking personally. Um, it doesn't try to portray judges as just, you know, transmission systems, like car parts, because she doesn't view them that way either. It's, it's a total, you know, the only difference between these three opinions is methodological, right? I mean, that's because if you're an original, um, if, you're, if you're an original intent person, and there are very few of those in the academy right now. But if you, if you think what you're trying to do is to channel legislative intent, then I think clearly this case is wrongly decided. Oh, right. But right? in the – and when you say original intent, you mean original expected application. Like uh, it, it, will do, it, it will do in actual yeah, I, application what they thought it yeah, would have done in actual application. Right. Although, yeah, I, there, there is a kind of original principle thing which turns into a kind of a purposivism. But, but, but if – under either what do they think the words they wrote – embraced in, in principle or even pure application. I think either of those, the case comes out the wrong way. If you're an original public meaning originalist, I highly, I'm not sure exactly how to go about doing this. I would kind of, you'd have to look at newspapers around the time, what people thought, you know, you do all this kind of work, I guess. And, and, and maybe it comes down to textualism, which is what Scalia reduced original public meaning originalism to, right? Just look at the text and try to think about the text itself. And that's what disciplines you. Um, Interesting how textualism works here, but if we were really, if we really could channel what people thought at the time, I think again the case comes out the wrong way. If you're textualist, it's kind of interesting. I'm not sure how that shakes out. But um, if you're a pragmatist like Posner, you come out like Posner. Yeah, right? and part of being a pragmatist is being a presentist. Yeah, yes. you, you don't focus on 1964. You focus on today, and and when you focus on today, and I and I think Anthony was quite right to raise this quite a bit earlier in the conversation. When you think about the constitutional principles um the uh, and, and in particular the the equality principles that have been articulated in Romer and Lawrence and Windsor and Obergefell and you ask yourself what you're supposed to do when you're confronted with a way to think about sexual orientation discrimination that is uh within an umbrella of sex discrimination right um i think the lesson of let me say the list one more time, Romer, Lawrence, Windsor, Obergefell. I think the lesson of that is you take that argument very seriously because the, the equality principle, the constitutional level insight about what it really means to treat people equally under the law 
ought to affect the way you think about Title VII, which is the statutory charter that implements our equality principles. I mean... Uh, in it, the private sphere. In the private sphere, correct. Not just in the private, but but so, you know, so you, you, in, yeah, you yeah. so you have to take you you can't if you think about sex without looking at those developments. It seems to me you're blinding yourself to very important and deep events in our constitutional fabric that that ought to affect the way statutes operate. Again, if you're a presentist rather than a right. resolute backward looker, and it's interesting because I think for progressives, I mean. You, I mean, maybe you can't have it both ways. I, I, there's so much to say here, and I'm, I want to let Anthony finish this up, maybe. <laughs> but uh, I, it's interesting to think of the judge in Posner's terms as the, as the person who's kind of updating statutes and, and not trying to raise from the dead and, and let undead legislators speak uh, or undead uh, um, electors speak, but rather is kind of you know, taking old statutes, updating them, and making them acceptable. There's also this idea, though, of the of the wise judge who stands. This is like the conservatives' definition of the conservative, right? The person who stands athwart history, yelling "stop" or something like this, right? It's but the judge too is can heroically stand in front of a screaming mob, a fascistic mob, and yell "stop," right? We have important principles. The judge can be a reminder of old principles, which are important, you know. Um, and at at a time at which you know everyone is crying out for you know, something which would threaten these values. And I think the, the critique of, of a kind of living constitutionalism or li living statutism that some people would make is that you can't have it both ways. I'm kind of thinking out loud here right now and trying to be self-critical about, right. about this. Um, well, just, I, I have more thoughts, but it would take forever to kind yeah. of go through it. So let's give Anthony the last word because yeah. we, are, we, are, we are running out of time. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think um, it's, well, I guess to, to look at this from a, more 40,000 foot level at the moment. I mean, it'll be more interesting to me to see what the 11th Circuit does, particularly if they go on banc or not, um, and, and whether the Second Circuit does the same, and, and to see if we're starting to get this, you know, a, a building consensus. Um, and, I, and I'm very in particular, uh, particularly interested to see if the poser concurrence makes its way into some dissents in the Second Circuit and the, or the Eleventh Circuit, yeah. um, and and to see if there's actually a negative fallout. As you know, when I'm reading it, that's you know, my, my mind went to that. Um, you probably thought Anthony of the of Justice Scalia in Windsor being cited in the cases leading up to Obergefell, right? Oh was, yeah, yeah. I mean, because he was saying there's no way. <laughs> was it Windsor? No, it was Lawrence, right? No, well, Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, um, you know, Where he I, said I, that there's no way to read this without getting to marriage equality. And then right. a bunch of people cited in lower courts, look, marriage equality has to be the law because Justice Scalia said so. Right. And, and, and you know, I think I think this will, uh, you know, over time, I think the circuits will I think ultimately the circuits will take care of this. I wouldn't even be surprised if it doesn't wind up going um, to the Supreme Court anytime uh, in the near future. Because um, I, I think, frankly, unless you get a really devastating opinion from uh, one of the courts that, um, that that refuses to recognize sexual orientation discrimination, I don't know if the, the, the willpower will be there to take this up, uh, much like <clears throat> last time we talked with the, the denial of, of cert on the marriage claims. Um, you know, I, I think they're going to, I think that the, um, the strategy will be let the circuits clean it up and then, and then maybe take the last outliers and, and bring them into the fold down the road. But yeah, we, th we thought that was going to happen, and then suddenly, 
um, was it the Sixth Circuit that created the split? Yeah, Judge Sutton. Yeah, was ju- exactly. You said, you know, I, I, my personal feelings are one way, but the law compels me to do another, and suddenly the split's there, and the court has to take it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we'll, 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 see, uh, we'll see what happens. And, you know, like I said, I think um, it'll be really interesting to see what the, 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 the Second and the, and, the, and the 11th Circuits do, because I think at some point, you know, when you have such very different courts, and I, I think, you know, particularly influential courts as the Second, Seventh, and the 11th, um, if you could get them all in a row and, and on the same page on this, I think that at that point, the writing's just on the wall, mm-hmm. which I, I think, frankly, it already is anyway. Um, but it'll be even so it'll be so much stronger and so much harder for other courts to resist if you get those those three courts um, in line here. So can I, you know, ask you, can I ask you one more thing, Anthony, about yeah. that? Um, so I think if you asked like uh, people who don't follow the law a lot and maybe, you know, couldn't tell you maybe they've heard Title seven, but they can't tell you all these cases and everything. And, and you just say, hey, I, I have a friend who was fired be, uh, by his employer because he's gay. I think a lot of people would have thought, hey, aren't there, isn't there a law against that? Isn't there a law against sex, against gender discrimination or against, you know, discrimination? They probably just say discrimination. I, I, I think the public consciousness is ready for this because people kind of already assume it's illegal, I, I would think. And so I'm wondering, uh, not, not, to, um, not, not to create a whole other show about this now, but just in terms of the bathroom cases, I think that the public doesn't have an intuition necessarily yet that, um, that anybody should be able to go into any bathroom. Like I think people understand, people intuitively think that's controversial. They may have an opinion about it, um, but they don't think automatically, hey, that's probably illegal. I mean, what, what do you think about my kind of sociological description here? Is that, is that right? And what does that say about the future of the, of the bathroom cases? And what do you, where, where do you think those are going? So, you know, I, I think the gay rights cases are very instructive here because the more, the more that courts were emboldened to protect gay rights, there was a, um, you know, I think there was a corresponding enthusiasm in the gay rights movement. And with that enthusiasm also came more people who were willing to be open about their sexual orientation, talk about their lives. And, you know, people, um, you know, were, you know, increasingly, had friends and family members who they knew who were, who were out openly gay. Um, and with that also comes understanding and, and social change more broadly. Um, you know, it goes back to exactly what we were talking about earlier, that this is all, you know, it's, it's not linear. It's, it's a very circular, messy process, and it's very much, uh, it, it rests upon these inter, um, you know, these inter-institutional um, conversations and conversations you know, in uh, in society more broadly, and just as the gay rights movement progressed and became more accepted and led to these you know bigger victories, I think the trans transgender um, community will see similar. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see a similar uh, uh, you know um, uh, benefit from these you know a couple initial rulings, and then more people will come out and and be honest, open and honest about their lives and and how they're living their authentic you know selves. Um, you know, in, in, in the public spaces. And with that will come more understanding and even more uh, legal protections for the, the transgender community. So, you know, I think, you know, like I said, I, just like the marriage cases, these, you know, these bathroom cases will, will you know, remedy themselves and resolve themselves um, over time. And I, and I think people will come to a better and clearer understanding that, you know, transgender people are not a threat to anybody. They just wish to live their lives out, uh, you know, authentically. Um, and for, uh, you know, 
for, for the law to protect them, um, it harms nobody. And once people realize that, um, you know, that's when the change will really come. But I think it's frankly coming sooner and quicker than I even ever anticipated. Um, just in the last few years, you, know, you look at the, the blowback against North Carolina, I could have never predicted that would happen. Um, you know, and, and so we'll, we'll see, time will tell, but, um, you know, I, I have a lot of hope that the law and society more broadly is, you know, trending in the right direction rapidly for, for the transgender community. Here, here. And, and boy, do you sound like Judge Posner there. Yeah, <laughs> I had to say, but I think I put it in a, I think I put it in a, in a little bit better of a way that's more palatable. <laughs> well, I always like the way that you put things, Anthony, and I've, I, I loved your, uh, your recent piece, which we'll link to in the show notes, the Potemkin village piece. And, and you've been writing up a storm and doing great work up there in Chicago, uh, not only academically and teaching, but you've, it sounds like your students have been, you've gotten your students involved in working on some of these cases and, um, sounds awesome. Yeah, no, they're 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 a good bunch. Got a uh, very blessed with a with a good good crop of students this year. So well, they're lucky to have you, and we were lucky to have you this afternoon. So thanks for yeah, thanks, thanks for, for joining us. us. This is great. Of course, anytime. All right, I'm take gonna, care, man. I'm gonna hit the stop right. button. Bye.